What It Takes is brought to you by Google, leading the way to a carbon-free future. By 2030, Google aims to operate on 24-7 carbon-free energy. That means completely eliminating carbon emissions from its electricity use all day, every day. And it means changing the way we track how carbon-free energy is sourced. And it, it, we think about it as the difference between a standard definition TV and a high definition TV. The HD picture provides more resolution and detail and nuance to the consumer than a standard def TV. Ben Gerber is president and CEO of MRETS, an organization that verifies how a company like Google buys renewables like wind and solar. A bit later in the show, Ben will explain how it's done on an hourly basis and why it's so important for transforming the grid. For more information on Google's zero carbon goals, go to g.co forward slash carbon free by 2030. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero carbon future a reality. When it comes to companies in climate tech, there's only one name that's known around the world. Tesla has arguably been the defining climate tech success story of the 21st century, driving demand for electric vehicles and becoming one of the world's most valuable companies. When people think of the person behind Tesla, they think of Elon Musk. But Musk wasn't there from the very beginning. He was an early investor in the company and didn't become CEO until five years after its founding. Martin Eberhard was there from the start. And as co-founder and founding CEO, he had already spent years building a new kind of electric car that people would actually want to buy. I credit all of the electric vehicle industry, all of it to Tesla, 100%. There, there was nobody making electric cars when we started that, and nobody believed in it. And if you went and talked to people in the auto industry, first thing I would tell you is that electric cars are dead. And what the public knew is about electric cars is they're dead and they suck. And we, we cured that. Martin started Tesla with his co-founder, Mark Tarpanin, in 2003. This was the dark ages of electric cars. Automakers had lobbied against policies promoting EVs in the 90s and then killed their own battery-powered models. They were also really expensive. The battery technology was still nascent, and it wasn't clear what kind of battery chemistry would work best for electric mobility. Mainstream car makers expressed nothing but doubt. The auto industry would tell you that lithium-ion batteries would never be used in cars. They're too complicated, too hard to manage, etc. And today, there isn't anybody who makes an electric car that doesn't have lithium-ion batteries. I would say that 100% of the EV industry today all traces back to Tesla and all traces back to that Tesla Roadster. Martin was the CEO of Tesla from 2003 until 2007, until one day he was unceremoniously kicked out of the position by Tesla's board, of which Elon Musk was chairman. I was actually on my way to go give a talk at some conference and got a call that said that when I got back, I wouldn't be CEO anymore. And, uh, and no explanation, no opportunity for me to talk about it or talk to the board or someone, yeah. Over the years, Tesla has become synonymous with Elon Musk, but Elon was the fourth CEO. And a lot of people have forgotten or even tried to rewrite the founding story of the company. I guess the thing I would say is don't believe everything you read on the internet. There's other people with, with uh, agendas that, that say things about me that are simply not true. And as with uh, reading about global warming or, the, or vaccines or whatever, there's a lot of nonsense out there. And people who are, are making that nonsense have their own agendas. So we invited Martin here to What It Takes to tell his story and the untold story of Tesla's founding. 
We talked about where his EV inspiration came from, blowing up batteries in his yard, cobbling together parts to make Tesla's first prototype, and what happened when he was kicked out of the company. We also dig into his rich history of entrepreneurship, including pitching the first ebook to Jeff Bezos in the late 90s. I want to start by asking about your first encounter with an electric car. It sounds like it was underwhelming. And so I would love to hear when <laughs> when was it and why was it so bad? It's hard for me to say when's the first time I saw an electric car. I mean, I've been aware of them since I can remember. You know, I, I grew up in Berkeley, California, where people were making various kinds of conversions of cars since I can remember. So I had seen kind of homemade and pretty crummy little electric cars since I can remember as, as a kid. And all of them had basically the same features, that they were underwhelming to drive. They usually looked pretty bad. And they had very short driving range, you know, because the battery technology was so poor. Tell me more about growing up in Berkeley. What was that like? I think it was in the 60s and 70s. Well, that's right. Yeah, I, I grew up in Berkeley in the 60s and 70s when, yeah, Berkeley was very different than it is now. Yeah. It was called the People's Republic of Berkeley, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like and what were you like? Um, well, you know, wherever you grow up, that's all you know. So it seemed perfectly normal to me at the time. But I do remember, for example, in 1968, and I was eight years old, I remember when downtown Berkeley was occupied by the National Guard. I remember the various riots that went on in Berkeley. And I was probably too young to really appreciate what this was about. But it was you know, definitely something that we noticed. I know you wore a pin on your coat that said question authority. What did that mean to you? Yeah, that's right. I don't know. It was, I guess I grew up thinking about maybe doing things in unconventional ways always. And mm. somewhere along the way, probably from a street vendor on Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley, I bought uh, this little pin that said, question authority. And one of my friends always ribbed me and said, that, does that mean I'm an authority on questions? Like, you know, about, you know, <laughs> rhetorical questions and, uh, and stupid questions and et cetera. <laughs> yeah. Did that align with the personality of your parents or were you kind of unique and rebellious relative to, to who they were? Oh, I guess they would say I was unique and rebellious <laughs> to them, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, my dad was one was early in the computer business. He was, uh, he started working as a computer programmer in like 1958 or 1959, and so that was, fr from his family's perspective, pretty rebellious. Before co-founding Tesla together, you and Mark Tarpening had a bunch of collaborations together, you call Mark the straight man. And if you couldn't get an idea past him, you knew it might not work. Describe that dynamic and what were some of your early ventures together? Yeah. So I, I met Mark socially through a mutual friend and we, we enjoyed you know, talking to each other and, and you know, exchanging ideas. After quite a few years of that, there was an opportunity for us to both work together on a consulting project for one of the disk drive companies. And, and we did that. It was, it was quite fun. We, you know, we had to design something that was, you know, I mean, from today's perspective, pretty boring. But I think the architecture we came up with was unique and, and pretty interesting, and it worked nicely. And more importantly, the experience of working together with Mark was uh, a real pleasure for me. And I think he had the same feeling. So when that was finished, and we did a few consulting jobs together, we started thinking about the idea of starting our own company together. And this was at a time when... You know, mobile technology was just getting going. We all had actually workable laptops. We all had cell phones, much bigger and clunkier and lower function than today's, of course, but nonetheless. And then, of course, the other item we would always have was our Palm Pilot for our, you know, our calendar and so on. And we had become aware of, well, first of all, that batteries were just getting good enough, you know, for mobile tech. This was still in the days of nickel metal hydride batteries. And that, you know, the low-powered electronics, particularly, you know, computing power, 
was just becoming possible, as well as flash memory was getting to be pretty cheap. I mean, relatively so. And this is where this idea of, of making an electronic book came from, was, was basically looking at these bits of technology and thinking about where we could apply this in some space where we both were interested. It wasn't just some piece of tech gadget, but something that we liked. And that was the idea behind the ebook thing. So, yeah. And this was in 1997, which was 10 years before Kindle was founded. And that's Actually, when 1996, you started... yeah, yeah. Oh, 19... okay, 1996, 1996. Yeah, even, even, yeah. even longer. And that's when you started this e-reader company called Rocketbook, as you said, with Mark. What were the steps in your life that led up to that moment? Where did you go to college? What did you study? And then what was your entrepreneurial journey after college that led you to have that conversation with Mark to say, let's start an ebook company? Well, so I, I got a master's degree in electrical engineering from the, the University of Illinois. At that time, my interest was really in, in computers. I mean, designing computers or, or equipment around computers seemed like the leading edge of technology at the time where you know, a new invention was happening and, and it looked like a long future. So that's, that's where I started. And when I finished my master's degree, I did the usual um, on-campus interview thing and interviewed with a whole bunch of companies and actually received quite a few job offers from various segments of the industry in different parts of the world. And I, I finally accepted an offer from a then startup company in Silicon Valley called Wise Technology, which was making, at the time, computer terminals. And I selected that company. Uh, it was definitely not the, 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 the highest paying offer I received, but it was, it was a company where I really liked the vibe of the company. It was dynamic and everybody seemed to be you know, working together as a team. And, and I, I liked the feel of it. And I didn't actually understand what it was that I liked. I mean, as it turns out, this was a, a startup company. I was employee number 45 or thereabouts. And I actually didn't even understand what a startup company was. I didn't understand what stock was at all. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what stock options were. And in fact, in those days, when you joined a company like that, they didn't actually give you a stock option. They gave you a stock grant, which you had to pay for on the spot. Okay. Well, I was fresh out of college. I had amassed some serious student debt finishing my degree. And suddenly I have to like pay money to get a job, which seemed kind of odd That's to me. That's wild. Yeah, and, and, and <laughs> you're like, company, wait a minute, you're right, supposed to pay me. <laughs> right, well, the company had a program where I could actually borrow that money from the company and then buy my stock, which is what I did. So I went further into debt at that point, which, which seemed kind of weird. Uh, and I didn't really understand the whole game until some years later when Wise Technology went public and suddenly I actually had some money. You know, I had enough money to put a down payment on a house in Palo Alto. Of course, houses in Palo Alto were a lot cheaper than <laughs> than now. Yeah. Yeah. But so your first company out of college was a startup. You chose it because you liked the vibe, even though it didn't pay the most relative to the, your other offers. And then eventually that company went public. Right. And mainly, I, I didn't even know what a startup company was. It was all new to me. And I worked my way up through the ranks in that company until I was a manager. I was manager of high-end terminal development was my title. And so I had proposed a network-connected graphics terminal to management at WISE several times and, and was shot down every time. And so a friend of mine from that company and I, together with four people from another uh, startup company that had ended, uh, got together to create a company to make such a product. We, we created a company called Network Computing Devices, where we made these ex-Windows-based graphics terminals. We, we came out with a, a line of these products and uh, eventually went public in, I guess, 1991. So you're two for two on public companies right yeah, out of college. Was, yeah, yeah, well, but this one I, I take more credit for because I was actually part of the founding team on that one. Whereas Wise, I just came in as an employee. 
And then what was the path to Rocket eBook? So, so NCD went through a journey and, and eventually wanted to transform themselves into a, basically a software-oriented company. And me, as an electrical engineer, really focused on hardware. I could see that my days there were numbered. So mm-hmm. I, I left um, and I did some co- consulting. And this is when I started doing consulting together with Mark. We had known each other already, but we did a few consulting gigs together, mostly in the disk drive industry. And the disk drive industry was, you know, technically interesting if you're into the sci- the engineering of it. But mm-hmm. other than that, I mean, crushingly dull. I mean, just, <laughs> just I mean, you know, I remember we went to a to a trade show that was called DiscCon, and <laughs> and if it weren't for the giant espresso shack outside the the conference, I think we would both have just died of boredom. So. <laughs> You know, you can only look at like flex circuits and, you know, read channel amplifiers and stuff like that so much. <laughs> From there, I know you went out to fundraise and at one point you pitched to Jeff Bezos. What happened? Oh, that's right. Yeah. So we were looking for funding from anybody. And obviously at the time, Amazon, Amazon, remember, then was a bookseller. Mm-hmm. They almost sold nothing else. And so it seemed like a kind of a natural fit, you know, an internet based bookseller. And we're doing an electronic book where the content is delivered over the internet made sense. Mm-hmm. And we had already made some progress with, uh, with the publishing community that we were getting some content, a little bit at that point, not much, but it was enough to show that it was maybe going to happen. So we pitched this to Jeff Bezos at Amazon and spent a couple of weeks with him up in, in Washington, showing him what we had, and he liked it. Uh, and I think he got the idea in general. After lots of negotiation, we we're basically unable to come to an agreement about how we would do business together. And and the hang-up seemed to be that particularly not Jeff Bezos, but his lawyer was very concerned that by investing in us, that he would somehow or other enable his competitor also to get into the space and compete. His competitor in those days was Barnes & Noble. You remember they had BN.com, mm-hmm. which was doing more or less the same thing, although not as well. And so every time we thought we had an agreement, by the time the lawyers were done putting a contract together, it had a poison pill in it where where Amazon could basically block us from taking investment from anybody they felt like. And I was just really afraid to agree to such terms. And after round and round and round, I gave up. And, and I did kind of the obvious thing. I got on a plane and went to New York and met with the team from Barnes & Noble. Le- Len and Steve Riggio were then running the company. And I met with both of them. And, and they also got it right away and agreed to invest. So, that, so actually Barnes & Noble became our one of our very first investors, our first real investors, yeah. So this is two IPOs, and then Rocket eBook eventually gets acquired, is that right? Right, well, that was a real surprise. We had, a, by our own measurements anyways, a really good Christmas season, the year of 1999. We sold, I don't know, something like 40,000 Rocket books. Uh, we had about 50% of the front list books from all of the major US publishers available on the Rocket book, and that was, that was a big hurdle we had gotten over to get those frontless titles. I mean, there was a lot of resistance in the beginning from the author and the publishing community. So it's interesting. Your entire adult life after college, you were starting and pitching companies, and yet you had what you described as crippling stage fright. <laughs> how did you pitch these ideas to investors? And then how and when did you overcome that fear? Yeah. The first time I was responsible for the pitch was with Nuva Media, with the, the Rocket Book Company. Before that, I was just the engineer, you know, and I would give materials to the management team to go do the pitch, but I didn't do the pitch. And <laughs> when we first started Nuva Media, I signed up as a CEO because Mark wasn't going to do that. But the, but the original idea was that we would go find somebody to be CEO because it was just not my gig. I, I wanted to be an engineer. And 
that didn't happen. I started, I put together the very, very early pitches, you know, I wrote the decks and so on. And I was coached then by a woman named Judy Estrin, who had been the, the executive VP at NCD and was a, a, a good friend and, and was somebody who I knew gave really smooth presentations. And so she, she invited me to her office to try out my pitch on her. And she was brutal. I sat down with my presentation and and walked her through it. And she sat there with a, just a, a stone cold face, didn't make any expressions at all. Every now and then she'd write something on her paper and look up at me. It was just difficult as heck. Uh, and then afterwards, she gave me some, some advice uh, about my presentation. And, and a couple of the pieces of advice she gave me were, were crucial. The first one was she said, she says, Martin, I know that you talk too fast. It's, it's in your nature. And, and it seems like when you made this presentation, you were deliberately slowing it down. And I said, yeah, I was. I know I talked too fast. And so I was trying to make it slower. And she, she said, don't do that. When you do that, okay, you're slower, but you lose, you lose the energy, you lose the enthusiasm. It mm-hmm. feels kind of um, mm-hmm. yeah, uncomfortable. So just, just talk at your normal pace. Summarizing your, your early career, in all of your ventures, you have focused on the computer-human interface. What has drawn you to that interface? Well, that's right. That's, <laughs> yeah, it's how, you, how do you connect, you know, computer terminals, graphics terminals, electronic books, electric cars? What's the common thread? And, and that's what it is. And you know, when I took the job at WISE, that was not on my mind, I don't think, in particular. But I got into it there that I got real, real interested in, you know, just exactly what makes a keyboard feel right versus one that doesn't. Given the limitations of what was possible on an old CRT screen, how can I make that characters you're seeing there as, as readable as possible? How do I get the graphics to be as natural as possible to the person looking at it? And that got me interested in thinking about kind of that fuzzy line between the machine and the person. Coming up, Martin becomes obsessed with batteries and tries to convince his longtime collaborator, Mark Tarpening, to build a car with them. First, a quick word about our partners. What It Takes is sponsored by Google, leading the way to a carbon-free future. At the top of the show, you heard Ben Gerber. He's CEO of Emirates, an organization that verifies how much renewable energy is being generated on the grid and who's laying claim to that energy. To provide a important piece of transparency and credibility And they do this through Renewable Energy Certificates, or RECs. So it's just a digital asset that lives on our servers. And it's how a utility or company like Google proves it bought all the renewable energy it claims. RECs have been around for a long time, but they're changing. Google is already buying enough renewable energy to meet its average yearly needs. Now it's going further, working to maximize the decarbonization impact on an hourly basis. And to get to those goals, the market needs to start understanding when generation happens and being able to match it to load. Google and Emirates work together to create the first hourly renewable energy certificate, pulling in granular data sets to prove real-time carbon impact on the grid. The barrier is the data and especially the data around decarbonization. And that's the conversation that we've started to have, which is one of the reasons we were excited to work with Google and be very public about our announcement was to let the the market know, the renewable energy market, that this is possible. Google is committed to scaling this model for everyone. It's part of the company's dedication to transparency and its work to decarbonize the world's grids. The goal? Every time you hear 24-7 carbon-free energy, you can trust that it means real carbon reductions on the grid hour by hour. Absolutely, you should be trusting. And there 
are, are credible third parties that will provide that transparent data. So what, we, what we've seen is these ideas are now based in, in data that's transparent and supportable and not just through hopes that, yes, we're having this intended impact. If you want to get inspired by the challenge or if your business can help Google get to 24-7 carbon-free energy by 2030, visit g.co forward slash carbon-free by 2030. What It Takes is also brought to you by NextTracker. With trackers and controls based on machine learning technologies, NextTracker builds connected solar power plants that keep getting more intelligent. Solar is quickly becoming the cheapest form of electricity on the planet, and NextTracker technology helps developers lower their costs and boost energy yields. NextTracker is also committed to increasing diversity within our solar workforce. Working with Renewables Forward, Solar Energy International, and the Clean Energy Leadership Institute, NextTracker is educating and training the next generation of clean tech professionals, people from all backgrounds. If you want to learn more about NextTracker jobs, visit nexttracker.com forward slash careers. So I started looking at batteries actually in the late 90s because of the Rocket eBook. So our, our first eBook used what was then best kinds of, of batteries for handheld equipment was uh, nickel metal hydride batteries, which were, were pretty good. They had definitely their limitations. And as we designed the second generation Rocket eBook, which was actually the one that was in development when we were acquired, we used lithium ion batteries, uh, which were the, the newest technology and, and clearly better than everything that came before. So. And, but we also understood that they required a lot more management than every other kind of battery that came before them. And, and we pretty well understood that, uh, what that management entailed. That was one of the key pieces of, of starting Tesla was, could we actually build a battery system for a car using the same technology and just scaling up that battery management from two cells to you know, nearly 7,000 cells? Yeah, most people would assume the answer is no. And before Tesla had raised any capital, it was just you and Mark thinking about how to start a car company. And Mark thought that starting a car company was totally nuts. But you were convinced that there were major trends like better batteries and the need to get off foreign oil that made electric cars attractive. So how did you convince Mark to start Tesla with you? Well, I, I had been thinking about this for a while, not originally as a as an idea for starting a company, but but more for what kind of car would I drive next? I, I wanted a car that was you know, fun to drive. I, I like driving. I, I've had various kinds of sports cars over the years, and I, I wanted something fun, but I didn't want to buy something that was lousy gas mileage, and prefer, preferably something that didn't even use fossil fuels. So that was where I started. And so I wanted to know for myself what was the right technology. And I, I spent a lot of time studying every possible way I could think of moving a car that would, you know, whether it's gasoline or diesel or you know, some kind of hybrid or, or electric cars with the electricity made from various sources like natural gas or coal or even uh, diesel. And then also looking very closely at, at hydrogen fuel cells, which is where the auto industry had just recently moved. They had basically all given up on electric cars. Maybe anybody who's seen that movie, Who Killed the Electric Car, knows that many of those cars were taken back and actually crushed. And so I did, I did this math where I looked at the uh, actual energy content of the source fuel, I mean, the, the, the stuff that came out of the ground, whether it's coal or oil or natural gas or whatever, and the efficiency of con converting that into a fuel that goes into a vehicle, and then the efficiency of the vehicle itself. And I could compute the well-to-wheel energy efficiency from the source fuel to the actual driving vehicle. Uh, and I, and I, I went over that pretty carefully, and, and all of my numbers came from reliable sources. And it was the more I looked at it, the more it became obvious that the electric cars weren't just better than all the other choices, but much better. And that 
<laughs> hydrogen fuel cells were a dead end. That the efficiency mm-hmm. of that that system was no better than gasoline cars. The carbon footprint would be the same. So that was where I started. And then how did you convince Mark to join you? Well, the next step was to try to go buy myself an electric car. And that's when it became painfully aware that you couldn't. There was none available. The, the best I could find was a, a little company in Southern California that was basically on the way to going out of business, a company called AC Propulsion, that had made a couple, uh, I mean, exactly three electric cars using lead-acid batteries still, but was uh, a little trying to make a little sporty car. It was very homemade, kind of a kit car, but it was something different than the glorified golf carts that you normally saw. And so I contacted them and they explained to me that they really weren't making anything anymore, that they had basically lost all of their revenue generating business when the car companies stopped looking at electric cars because what they had been doing to make money was making electric car conversions for the car companies and that ended. So I I realized that they had the pieces lying around their shop to make one more of these so-called T0 cars and I was willing to pay them to assemble that car for a car for me. And additionally, I did not like the idea of the lead acid batteries, particularly the way they were actually installed in that car that was really dangerous to me. And so I had this idea of using lithium ion batteries, the same thing I was familiar with from the rocket book days. And as it turns out, they had also been thinking about the same thing. And so we agreed that they would build me a car using lithium ion batteries. Before they did that, they would convert their own car, one of the three they had built they still owned, convert it from lead acid to lithium ion. Uh, so I paid for that. I actually wound up investing in the company and paid them to convert that car. And they were, in the end, actually unable to build the car for me. They couldn't do it. They let me borrow their car, and I drove it for three or four months as my daily driver. Mm. Uh, and I got the feel of it, and I enjoyed it. And it, to me, it was very sad that AC Propulsion would never be able to turn that into a car. And it was also clear to me that this was real, that, that mm-hmm. even though this was a little homemade car, that, that it proved that you could make an electric car that was exactly the opposite of what everybody thought about electric cars. It was, everybody thought electric cars were ugly. This car maybe wasn't beautiful, but it pointed the direction to being beautiful. Mm-hmm. Most people thought electric cars as uh, slow and unfun to drive. This was fast and very fun to drive. Most people thought of electric cars as being uh, very short range. Because of its lithium-ion batteries, this car had actually had a very decent range. And I looked at that and I said, this is a great opportunity. And on top of that, all of the people who ought to be the competitors in that space, all of the existing car companies had recently very vocally, very loudly moved out of the electric car space and were off chasing the windmills of hydrogen fuel cell cars. So this is the kind of the, the story I laid out to, to Mark. And, and, you know, he was pretty skeptical and, you know, I had to do my homework on this energy calculations as carefully as possible because he challenged everything. You know, how do you know what is the conversion of, for example, uh, crude oil into gasoline? What's the efficiency of that? And I said, well, here's a, here's a published study from Standard Oil Corporation. Okay, that's pretty good. What is the efficiency of moving electricity on the electric grid? Well, here's a, a study that was co-authored by the oil companies and one of the big electric companies. Okay, that's pretty good. So I did that all the way through. And, and Mark you know, began to realize that electric cars actually did make sense. Of course, there was this big hurdle of, does it make sense to actually start a car company? Right, and he thought so, you were nuts. <laughs> that's right, yes. For me, the, the moment when I actually kind of maybe had him persuaded was when I came up with this name, Tesla Motors, you know, I've been thinking about a name for a company for a long time. And I, and I came up with this name and it sounded good to me and it sounded good at that time to my girlfriend. And so I, I, on one of our morning coffee meetings, I, I suggested this idea. I said, what do you think of the name Tesla Motors? And he stops for a minute and he 
this is by the time we're of course on Wi-Fi, and he gets on his laptop and tapity taps on his keyboard for a bit, and says, "Oh, he says now we own the domain name." So he, <laughs> he at, that, at, at that moment bought the domain name for the company, and we began looking around to find a little office space, which we did find over in Menlo Park, and put the sign on the door that said Tesla Motors Inc. Yeah. What was fundraising like in the early days? How did you attract capital given the lack of interest in the EV market? Well, the earliest money in the company came from Mark and me and then from our friends and family. You know, it was small amounts of money, but it was, you know, it was what we needed to pay the rent of the office and buy the computers that we needed to do the work we were doing. And it was just the two of us sitting at our desks, you know, coming, you know, working out the ideas of the company. So that was the first money. We then first pitched the idea of the company to various venture capital firms who had invested in our previous companies. And two of them agreed to invest in the company, but they weren't willing to lead. We needed to find a lead investor. So we, we uh, were you know, basically following every single lead we could find, whether it's a venture capital firm or a corporate investor, perhaps, or, or various wealthy individuals. In that vein, uh, this is how we approached Elon Musk to invest. Most of the people we had showed this car to well, first of all, one thing for sure about venture capitalists is that almost all of them are experts on cars. <laughs> if you're not sure, just ask them. Uh, so all of them came for a drive in this little prototype that was the AC propulsion car. All of them knew all about the dynamics of cars or whatever, but, and, and they wanted to go for that joyride. But in the end, just coming off of the whole dot-com thing, the idea of not only investing in a company that was making a big old giant thing, but a car of all things. Right, right. No, like when's the last time somebody was successful starting a car company? I mean, you think back, <laughs> what, DeLorean, Tucker, you know? Right, right. And so that yeah. first round, other than friends and family, ended up being 6.5 million, 5 million of which was from Elon. Is that right? R- roughly correct. Yeah, it was that kind of number. Okay. Right. And the rest of it okay. was, was largely filled in by those other VCs. Yeah. Got it. And then what did you have to give up in order to get Elon in for 5 million? Well, he, he got a very large chunk of the stock and he uh, became the chairman of the board. I mean, I gave up the title of chairman. What did you try to do first from an engineering perspective, given that you're starting a car company from scratch? Right. Well, it, even before we approached uh, Elon, we had, uh, we had been thinking about how to do that, knowing full well that we would not be able to build an entire car from scratch. And more than that, it became very obvious early on that it would be difficult for us to hire people from the auto industry because most people in that industry were, were convinced that electric cars were impossible. So a bunch of crazy people out in California starting an electric car company on their own, it just doesn't sound like a career path. So we, were, we, we knew that we couldn't build the entire car, you know, do you know, homologation and crash testing and all that ourselves. Um, and so, uh, so we, we, we looked around for who might be a partner. We had a, a short list of companies that we thought would be suitable for that. And the top of our list was, was Lotus uh, in the UK, partly because their scale was not that far away from ours. They weren't a giant company. They were relatively small anyways. So their own production facilities were scaled the right way for us. And also because that company already had a business of doing engineering for other companies. So Mark and I approached Lotus at the LA Auto Show, the next, you know, the, the next one that came up, and basically invited ourselves into their booth and looked around until we found somebody whose, whose name badge I recognized, and then basically forced ourselves upon this guy to listen to our story. And him being a you know, polite British guy, he couldn't find a way to tell us to go away, so he had to listen. And when we were done, he was intrigued enough to invite us to the UK to make a pitch to, to Lotus about potentially doing business with us. At the same time, we, we talked to AC Propulsion about maybe taking a license for some of their motor technology. 
they were willing to do that for us. So, so we did that. And that one, I think, in the end, was a, was a mistake, that, that the tech that we got from them was much less mature than we had thought, that we basically wound up having to start over and reinvent it all. But that's where we started. So we had these two things in our, in our pocket. We had a, a handshake with Lotus to be our contract manufacturer for the non-drivetain components of the car. And we had uh, the starting point tech, uh, at least for the motor and charger from uh, AC Propulsion. And then we were, our, our plan was to quickly hire our own engineering team and, and, and build our own you know, motor controller and figure out how to make that motor in mass production and that kind of thing. Tell me about that. You raised this capital so that you could hire an engineering team. Who yep. were your first hires? Well, so, uh, I mean, we, we hired around. Actually, before we approached Elon, we, we had already brought on board Ian Wright. Ian, <laughs> uh, Ian wasn't actually looking to come and join us originally. He came to visit us to show us the business plan for his own company, something in the networking space. And he wanted some uh, advice on how to make a presentation. And so he showed me his presentation, which I thought was terrible. And I, and I showed him my presentation, unfinished, for Tesla. And he was so intrigued by it that he basically closed down his company and joined our company. So that was, that was, he's the only other guy who actually worked at Tesla before we were paying salaries. So it's the three of us. And then uh, once we had funding, we began hiring a variety of engineers. We hired electrical engineers. We hired a manufacturing engineer. We hired, of course, software guys, a whole a team of software engineers. I don't mean to say guys because we're... Not all of them were guys. <laughs> um, Good point. And I know you hired you hired JB Straubel, who served as CTO for a long time. Well, I hired JB Straubel, not as CTO though. I hired I hired uh, oh, yeah. JB was hired just as another engineer, and after some time, I promoted him up to CTO. Yeah. Got it. Got it. You hired uh, Jane Berdachevsky, who's now CEO and co-founder of Sela Nanotechnologies, who we've had on the show. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole a whole bunch of them. We were hiring basically as quickly as we could hire people who would be actually useful to us. And and yeah. along the way, some of our most important hires in those early days were actually in the UK. We opened a small office right on Lotus's campus and we were able to hire engineers that Lotus was actually shedding because they were going through what they colloquially called a redundancy. <laughs> and And we picked up a couple of very good engineers there that were, not only were they automotive engineers in general that knew the space pretty well, but they were well tuned into exactly what Lotus had. So as we're, as we're taking Lotus's technology and redesigning it to turn it into the Tesla Roadster, we had on our team people that were very familiar with, with how those worked and what their design was capable of. You've talked about the importance of battery safety in preparation for this interview. I talked to Gene about yeah. you and he <laughs> told me to ask you about blowing up batteries in your front yard in Woodside. <laughs> Can you tell me about that? Yeah, well, so... If you read the the data sheets from the various cells, the battery cells that were made by the you know these various companies, you would think that they're completely perfectly safe at the time. They all talked about they could take a puncture and they could take a this and they could take a that. And there had recently been in in the press a couple of very spectacular laptop fires that had a lot of people concerned about the safety of these kinds of cells just because they stored so much energy and when they burned they released that energy as fire. And so. Our team realized that we needed to do something about it. We needed to understand this better. And Gene and his crew forced a single cell into thermal runaway in the parking lot of our, our office and had to go on the roof to get the remains of the battery after it went flying in the air. Um, <laughs> so, and that was just a single cell. So we wanted to understand what happened if one cell went off as part of a larger group. So we built a, and a larger group, meaning like thousands. No, well, I mean that's the implication, but of course Eventually. we can't test it that yeah. way. So we we right. built a a small brick of cells. It had you know half a dozen cells, uh, but mounted in the way we thought we would mount them in the battery system at the same spacing. 
and we knew we couldn't just set that off in a parking lot. So I, I kind of live out in the country. So <laughs> in, in my front yard out in the country, we dug a big hole in the ground um, <laughs> and we put this group of cells in the ground together with some equipment that was designed to set it off, you know, force it to go into thermal runaway and together with a camera that could watch what was going on. And then we put a piece of plywood on top of the hole and put a bunch of, of cinder blocks on top as weight to hold it down. And then we stood back and started the camera and, and forced the thing into thermal runaway. And it was, it was very exciting. We, exactly what we hoped would not happen is what happened, that the, the one cell caught fire and it very quickly set the rest of them on fire very vigorously, enough that it actually blew that piece of plywood off of the hole and the cinder blocks went flying around and the camera itself was destroyed. Well, that led me to, to really make it a policy at Tesla that, that the battery system it was required that if a single cell goes into thermal runaway, that it not propagate to the adjacent cell. Mm -hmm. And I wanted that right. proven both by engineering and by actually proving it, by setting, a cell, mm -hmm. setting it on fire and proving it doesn't propagate. And I still mm -hmm. think that's mm -hmm. the right approach for any kind of advanced battery system. You know, it's, it's one thing to say that we can make the cells more and more and more safe, but if the cells are flammable, then you should assume that one of them goes into thermal runaway for the reasons you didn't think of. Mm, Whatever that mm, might be, yeah. whatever you think of, it's something else. And when it goes into yeah. thermal runaway, I want to make sure that it doesn't propagate to the adjacent cells. Absolutely. Or, or more, Absolutely. more generally, that nothing bad happens when that, when that one cell goes into thermal runaway. Definitely. Um, what was your single best day at Tesla? Oh, I would say probably the best day was the day we got back from the uh, prototype builder. We got the first Tesla Roadster that looked like a real car. I mean, it, it, was, it was fiberglass and Bondo, and it was way heavy, and, you know, it was very imperfect if you got close. But when you stood back and looked at it, it was beautiful. It really looked like a, like a, a gorgeous car and it looked like something that, would, that people would buy. And it had a drivetrain inside of it, even though it was a little bit kind of handmade and thrown together, it was, it was actually drivable. Mm -hmm. uh, but when that showed up and we had the whole company come into the shop and we, uh, we had a, a reveal to, the, to our employees where we pulled the cover off and everybody got to see it. I mean, it was beautiful. I was in mm -hmm. tears. Yeah. How many people at the company at the time? Uh, I'm not sure exactly anymore, but I would guess on the on the order of in in the U.S. side, I would say on the order of fifty, maybe something like yeah. that. Yeah. Were there moments that you thought you would have to close the doors at Tesla? Well, a, a startup company, at least anything you're doing that's interesting, is always a little bit manic depressive. You know, there's days when you're absolutely sure you're going to take over the world, and there's other days when you're sure you're going to get crushed like a bug. And and you know, we had ups and downs like that all along. You know, we had days where everything was working perfectly and we could see our way to the future. And there's days when, you know, some piece of technology was really holding us back. So we had a lot of that. But I guess I never thought about it myself as that we might close the doors. You know, I thought it might yeah. be difficult, but I, and it never, I never considered the idea of closing the company ever. What lesson took you the longest to learn? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I would say the lesson I'm still learning over and over again is to face your problems as soon as you can. It's easy to, when you've got a lot of problems going, it's easy to push the one you don't want to face to the side and let it fester for a bit and deal with it later. And you need to be honest with yourself and, and understand what are your real problems and put your focus on those as early as possible and face them. Mm -hmm. And that, that's not just technical problems. It might also be personnel problems. There's yeah. been times when you know, I've had to let somebody go from the company and it's very difficult for me to do that. I finally work myself up to, to getting rid of somebody who's a problem. And when I'm done, it's like, I should have done that six months ago. Understanding which are your real issues and facing them first. I want to go back to that day that you got the call where they told you you were no longer CEO. What did you do immediately after? I told my wife. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, uh, what, what happened so, next? Like walk me through like that well, 24 hours so, or 48 so, so hours. So then I, I tried to contact... 
the other board members in the company, and none of them would take my call at all. I was just cut off. Were you close with them prior to that? Yeah. Yeah, it was a board. Yeah. It was really weird. Yeah. And I learned that they had had a board meeting without me to vote me off the island. And I was not told about that and so on. So I, I then talked to, a, I have a relative who's a lawyer who pointed out that because of the bylaws of the company, that actually wasn't a board meeting. Um, right. if, if I'm not there, it's not a board meeting. And so mm -hmm. I informed them that they actually didn't have a vote that voted me off the island. And if they want to do that, they have to include me in the conversation. Um, and did they? Yeah, we did. So we had another phone-based board meeting. And uh, instead of just being kicked out of the company, I was in, I became vice president, or no, I became president of something ridiculous. I think shrubberies or, I don't know, sidewalk <laughs> pavement or something. I don't know. But I was a, I was a president with no portfolio. But that was, that was at least a little bit better than just being booted out with no explanation. So, yeah. uh, and the guy who came in to take my place was a guy named Michael Marks, whom I'd known for, for some years before that. He was the guy who had made Flextronics into the powerhouse that it had become in manufacturing. And, and I was actually very pleased with that because, you know, we were at the point at Tesla where we needed to make a transition from, you know, an engineering company to a manufacturing company. And I guess this is an important point that long before that had happened, I had initiated a CEO search. I had known that I was not the right guy for that, that there were better mm -hmm. people for, than me. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we had hired a, a executive headhunter who had uh, brought in a parade of potential candidates to be our CEO. And none of them pleased the board of directors, but that was ongoing, which is why I was so totally surprised when they bypassed all that and did this, this maneuver to, to boot me out. And then what was your process like? When did you then eventually actually transition out of the company? When Michael Marks came in, I'm not sure exactly what he had been told by by Musk and by the other board members. I don't know. But he treated me pretty badly as though I was some kind of pariah. And that lasted for a couple of weeks until it became obvious that whatever he had been told wasn't true. And we became, you know, we started to work together and, and, you know, working toward the goal of making Tesla succeed again. And somewhere within a year, maybe less than a year, I don't remember the, the time frame anymore, but but shortly thereafter that, he had some run-in with Musk about something or other. My guess it had, is it had to do with outsourcing, especially overseas, because you know, Michael Marks and with with Flextronics before that had been very successful at, at at making stuff all around the world, whether it's here in the mm -hmm. U.S. or in China or in India or other places. And he had had some conversation that did not go well, uh, and it was clear that he was on his way out too. So, oh, wow. so he took me aside and explained that to me, and and we both basically uh, left on the same day. Michael Marks oh, and wow. I did, yeah. And the, and and they brought in the next CEO, which is a guy named Zev Drory, who I think was not so good. And he he remained CEO for a while before Elon came in as as Tesla's fourth CEO. If you could go back in your early years and give yourself any piece of advice, knowing what you know now, what would it be? Well, I mean, the first one is I would pay much more attention to the various kinds of bylaws that are put in place by investors to understand what are the parameters around, you know, changing the board of directors and so on. Mm -hmm. what, what we wound up with was some investors who had an, a disproportionate control over the board of directors compared to their ownership in the company. Here's another one is that one of the problems I had when I was CEO was that we never had a CFO at that company. We didn't have one. And I kept trying to bring them in. I had, I brought in candidate after candidate and every single candidate that we had one board member or another objected. This one didn't have enough automotive experience. That one hadn't done a startup company. Some other one had whatever. And it was one after another. So I was basically running without a CFO the entire time. 
and then being beat up for not having you know good financial report stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I should have insisted in one way or another and just said, look, we're not running this company without a CFO. We're going we're to bring one in. Uh, the yep. first CFO of Tesla, the first actual CFO of the company, started the day I left. Looking after Tesla and then looking ahead for the industry more broadly, where did your journey in electrified transportation take you after Tesla? Well, it's clear to me that electric cars will live or die by their batteries. Everything else is easy. If you pick the wrong kind of motor, if your motor controller isn't perfect, you'll be okay. I mean, it's not, it's not ideal, but you'll be fine. But the batteries are, are the thing that matter for a bunch of reasons. I mean, the battery is, is the most expensive, least safe, heaviest, least reliable component in an electric car. And if you're not focused on the batteries, if you're not building the car around the batteries, you're doing it wrong. So after I left Tesla and after a couple of years of, of various kinds of public speaking and consulting, I took a job for a while with Volkswagen, helping them to work on a battery program internally that, that came to fruition. We made a really great demonstration car for their management there. And I continue to think about batteries since then up, up until now, thinking about how to make the battery system you know, less expensive, more reliable, less heavy, <laughs> and also trying to encourage the people who are making electric cars to focus on building the car around the battery. One of my favorite stats is that Teslas represent just 10% of electric vehicles globally. And what that means is that Tesla has pushed all the other car companies who would not have acted as quickly as they did because of Tesla. So the fact that Tesla is only 10% is actually a good thing relative right, to right. the electrification of transportation 100% agree, 100% agree. At the time we started Tesla, as I said, no, not one single electric, sorry, not one single car company was making electric cars, and now every single one does. There were a few holdouts mm -hmm. until recently. I think Mazda had no electric car program, and I understand they do finally now. They're, they're catching up. And, and even the guys who had spent uh, huge resources and marketing dollars on promoting hydrogen fuel cells are finally coming around to realize that those are stupid. With you and Mark as co-founders of Tesla, and I would argue some of the most influential people in the electrification of transportation globally, you're obviously a pioneer in electric vehicles, and yet you're very skeptical about autonomous vehicles. Why? Well, it's two different things. I mean, electric vehicles, I'm very positive about because they're making a difference in terms of carbon footprint. I'm very nervous about autonomous vehicles because we don't know how to make very complex systems provably correct. Bugs show up, and like you know, if you get a bug in your, your latest you know, iPhone update and it causes some app to crash or the OS crashes, it's not a big deal. It just reboots and you're okay. And the worst case, you can throw the phone out and get another one. If the software crashes on your self-driving car, the car crash can kill you or somebody else. And that's what concerns me. And I, I mean, I have practically never seen a software update for, for my computer, for my iPad for my iPhone that didn't have some bugs in it somewhere. And even on, on my Tesla Model S, my wife has a Tesla Model S, even that on its over-the-air over the updates, we get new bugs that come along. Sometimes it's terrible. The whole center console just shuts down and goes blank. There's a persistent bug that's been in my car for the last, my wife's car, for the last, I don't know, five or six updates, where it sporadically will open the charge port door. And you can hear it. It actually in software is releasing the charge board door and it opens. You have to get out and close it again. Okay, that's, that's just annoying. It's not a big deal. But if that kind of bug showed up in the software that's steering my car, you know, my car might be driven into the median and I'd be killed. And we've seen yeah. some of that. So yeah. I, I'm just really skeptical about our ability to make software that's, that's, that's safe enough, even if you can argue that it's already safer than human drivers, which I, I think is debatable. I think another piece that I concern, I'm concerned about is the ability to hack it. And, and, you know, mm -hmm. malicious actors hacking into that system, whether it's over the network or by hacking it on the road. 
I mean, there was a study that some university did where they, they put like two pieces of colored tape on a stop sign, just two pieces. And that was enough to uh, convince the Tesla autopilot software that it wasn't a stop sign and, and to drive right through. Yes. That, that simple. Where do you expect the greatest technological leaps in electrified transportation to come from looking forward? Well, the ones I hope for, of course, are all in the battery space. Uh, right now, I think we're on a trajectory where the electric cars are going to be just plain cheaper than the gasoline cars in the next you know, three, four years, maybe five years. But I, I think there's lots of room for that to get much, much better faster. And then related to that, I think there's uh, lots of innovation to be done in the energy generation side so that we can stop making these coal-fired plants, even if they are a better carbon footprint than the gasoline cars. We, we can do better. Agreed. So those are technologies Agreed. I think are important. We're going to transition to our high voltage round. So these are quick questions with like couple word answers. The first of which, and I'm very curious about this one is Martin, if you were going to be an animal, what animal would you be and why? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> uh, what animal would I be? I don't know. Maybe I would be a fox. How come? Fox, foxes are, are quiet and clever and can be adorable. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> 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 I like it. Yeah. Uh, what inspires you? What inspires me? I, I guess seeing people do big accomplishments. Yeah. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? If I was starting a new career tomorrow, especially if I was young and going and, and you know looking at you know, going to college again, I would go into bioengineering for sure. I think that's where the future is. Hmm. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? Many of my friends whom I admire, and that includes especially Mark. I remember you telling me that you and Mark have gotten coffee every Wednesday for the past how many years? Since about 1988, yeah. Even even through the pandemic, we, we do coffee over Zoom. That's an incredible friendship. Yeah. Uh, when have you failed? Uh, regularly. <laughs> Failure is a, is a lifestyle for me, but I, I tend to get up and run again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, any, any, any specific failure stand out? Well, getting booted out of Tesla counts, I suppose, but yeah. Do you see that as a personal failure? Yes, I do. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy that Tesla succeeded and I take a lot of pride in the, in the success of that company. But, mm. uh, but the, the fact that, 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 that my transition out of there was abrupt and unexpected is a failure on my part. What is the best investment you've ever made? Always investing in my own companies. Seriously. Mm. Yeah. Is there something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? I thought that I was a pretty good judge of character and I've learned that my first impressions of people are often quite wrong. <laughs> it's good good to have that self-awareness. Who has had the biggest influence on your life and work and why? Oh my goodness. I would say that the person who has the biggest influence on my life is my now departed grandmother. Mm. Uh, she, she taught me to be intellectually honest and demanded always honesty out of me. When are you your best self? I guess I'm my best self when I'm, when I'm actually in the flow, when I'm, I'm working on some complicated thing and I'm not thinking about anything else. What is your worst trait? My worst trait is I'm not really great at multitasking. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Oh my goodness, if I could change one thing about the world, I would reduce the amount of anti-intellectualism we have, this idea of, mm. of being against fact-based arguments. If there was just one person who was going to listen to this podcast, who would you want it to be? Oh, that would be probably some young person who's uh, in the university now and she's thinking about going into engineering and what to do with her life. Uh, when was the last time you were scared? <laughs> 
I, I mean, I'm scared a lot of different ways, but uh, I used to be a hang glider pilot. And I, I remember the last really big scare I had was my last second to last flight where I nearly crashed it. <laughs> and I couldn't fly for another year after that. I was so scared. And then I did one more flight and sold my glider. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a safe choice. What is your best quality? I guess my best quality is that I can, when I want to, I can focus really deeply on one particular subject and learn it. Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because... Companies fail because they have the wrong people. If you really knew me, you would know. <laughs> I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> if you really knew me, you would know that I'm not a tough guy. <laughs> Success is... Success is when you make yourself and the people around you happy. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have... If I have done one thing differently, I would have paid attention more in school. <laughs> uh, I, I remember you telling me you did not get good grades, generally speaking. Uh, I did sometimes and other times not. I, I got good grades after a while when I got the hang of it, but early on, not so much, yeah. I'm most proud of... I'm most proud of having started the EV revolution. Last question. To build a successful startup, what it takes is... It takes a, a passion for what you're actually doing, and it takes a good team. Martin Eberhard is the co-founder of Tesla. He's currently the founder, chairman, and CTO of Teveni, a company designing safer, denser, and lower-cost EV batteries. Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building our carbon-free future. Their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. Before you go, would you take a few seconds to leave us a review? We read every review and we're so grateful for your feedback. I want to thank Google for their support of the show. Find out how Google is accelerating the deployment of next-generation clean energy with its 24-7 carbon-free goal. Learn more by following the link in the show notes. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with PostScript Audio. Our mission at Powerhouse is to identify the most innovative startups and connect them to the world's leading corporations to drive decarbonization at scale. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, backs founding teams building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more about Powerhouse at powerhouse.fund, that's powerhouse.fund, and follow us on Twitter at Join Powerhouse, and you can follow me at Emily Kirsch. And at Powerhouse, we're hiring. If you want to help some of the biggest companies in the world build the future of energy and mobility, head over to powerhouse.fund forward slash careers. We are looking for an industry powerhouse to join as the vice president of our innovation firm. And for someone who wants to accelerate their career in climate tech as our marketing and operations associate, who will, among other things, work on this very podcast. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. Special thanks to Mike Miskovsky for making this interview possible. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes.